Hello and welcome to the Family Histories Podcast, the show for and about people who go do lally for death certificates, get emotional for electoral registers and are made merry by microfiche. My name is Andrew Martin and I've been researching my entire family history since 1995. Where's that time gone? In this episode, The Witness, my guest will be sharing how he moved from researching medieval history to family history. We'll be hearing about how his relative lived through great changes in Ireland. And we'll be looking for two ladies in 1840s County Tipperary to find out if they really were sisters. So put down those bishops' transcripts. Grab a cuppa and let's meet our guest. My guest today is a historian with a master's in medieval history, and he's a professional genealogist and a member of the Association of Professional Genealogists with a speciality in tracing Irish ancestry. To top it off, He's also an assistant genealogist with Ancestry.com's Pro Genealogist team. I therefore feel most humbled to welcome my guest, David Ryan. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. Well, it's lovely lovely to have you here. I have to ask, though, which came first, the love of medieval history or genealogy, bearing in mind that this is a family history podcast, <laughs> no pressure? Um, well, anyway, I always... I had always loved history when I was in school, and when I got into college, I was like, "Oh, okay, you know, so, you know, oh, I'll become a historian." And I, I was drawn to the medieval history because it was, you know, it was kind of different. Like, you know, like it was the very early medieval period, so you're talking about roughly from. St. Patrick in the mid-300s up to the Venerable Bede around kind of, you know, the late, the late 600s. Okay. And that was really, you know, the folks. So I started that, and, you know, because at the time I didn't even know that, you know, genealogy existed as a job. Okay. I mean, that that's quite a lot earlier than you would expect to see in the usual genealogy records as well. Oh, it is. I mean, back then, you know, well, your know, genealogy did play a part in it because, you know, it was, you know, a few years later when I did get into genealogy, that I looked back at some of the sources we had covered in in the Masters. And, you know, like someone like St. Patrick, uh, one of his, you know, the only two sources that survive, his, his confessio, his confession, he starts it off by talking about his his family background, you know, his lineage. And of course, that's a very clear message to his listeners. It's really, you know, kind of, you know, the medieval equivalent of saying, don't you know who I am? <laughs> and that was, you know, that was very important for, for, you know, people back then, like, you know, who was your, you know, who were your family connections? Mm-hmm. Because a lot, most bishops, most abbots, you know, a lot of them came from from aristocratic families. Yeah. And so, you know, like that lineage was important. And of course, if you wanted to become king, especially in a society like Ireland that didn't have, um, didn't have sort of like direct succession, mm-hmm. it was more sort of almost like kind of an election. But it was okay. only you kind of you know, if you wanted to become king of your province or of your territory, 
then you needed a direct ancestor who had been king at some point. So, well, case what you had is, you know, you had these upstarts who would, uh, you know, get creative with their genealogy in order to lay claim upon the kingship. Wow, that, that would be that would be quite a task for them. <laughs> it, well, I suppose, you know, you know, records at that time were kept orally. Yeah. You know, I mean, you would have some written chronicles, but it, you know, was a lot harder to spot bad genealogy. Okay. Than it is now. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you had people saying, "Oh, I'll, I'll sell you this uh, family tree if you like for for a, yeah. for, a, for a good price." <laughs> if you remember me when you were the king. <laughs> so, what was the that aspired you to take up family history when you eventually kind of had got through, established your passion for medieval history? Uh, it was actually it was a couple of years later. I was working as a. Uh, tour guide and sort of historian in residence with a an art centre in Cork City called uh, uh, the Triscoll Christchurch. And the reason it was called Triscoll Christchurch was because they had just taken over management of this former church that had been next door to their to their previous venue. Okay, and this was a church that was still in good condition, had only been deconsecrated in the late 1970s, but had history stretching back to the foundations of the city. And there was so much history there. And of course, with churches, you also come across a lot of names. And I began looking into a lot of the, the old families that were commemorated on the stained glass windows and on the various memorial plaques within the church. And then, you know, occasionally I would have people contacting me trying to find out information about their family who had been members of the congregation at some point. And they assumed that we still had all the records. Uh, you know, I had to break them that, no, you know, any, any records were were sent off to the, the Church of Ireland archives up in Dublin. They're all there, you'll have to contact them. But you know, I think of it, I said, you know, you know, by outsourcing this, by sending them away constantly, that's, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. You know, I should be learning how to do, to do this. And I was just fortunate that at that time, the local university was starting up an evening diploma course in genealogy, with the focus okay. really being on helping those who who aspired to professional genealogy, or at least to a you know, professional research standard. So I took that up and got involved with uh, uh, you know local societies and. Yeah, it's been, you know, I've been hooked ever since. Would you say that maybe your start in genealogy is more as a professional genealogist rather than researching it for your own interests? Well, I think yeah, I think they, I think they cross over because mm. even when I was a child, I remember you know, I'd be visiting grandparents and there'd be other relatives there, and was trying to figure out, okay, you know, how are we all connected? But at the time, I didn't. I didn't, you know, really realize that was genealogy. 
Because, you know, really all I'd seen of genealogy at the time was stuff like, you know, who do you think you are? Yeah. yeah. And so, well, you know, it can't be genealogy. That's just, that's, you know, that's just for famous people. <laughs> or if you want to be king. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so having having seen who do you think you are and you've kind of naturally progressed into it, I guess, um, what what kind of sources did you kind of start with with your with your research before you had to kind of... Take a bit uh, well, Irish genealogy, as you know, a lot of people know, is on one hand it's frustrating, but on the other hand, we're actually extremely fortunate because so much that's out there is freely available. Uh, so I would, you know, I would have started with stuff like the the surviving the two surviving census records for Ireland that are you know available at the moment the nineteen oh one and nineteen eleven census and then you know would have worked my way back through uh, lots of the other stuff that was freely available like uh, you know civil registration indexes stuff like that I think you know, at least with that you guess a you guess a broad overview of your ancestors' lives. And then you kind of, you know, you have to start digging deeper through newspapers, start looking at parish registers and, you know, who were the, the baptismal sponsors and the witnesses to the marriages. You've just alluded to uh, records being deposited in uh, Dublin. Um, are, are Is that the case for all of the records? Are there still some records that are retained by the churches? In the parishes? There are some, well, the, what happened is that the, because the Church of Ireland, similar to the Church of England, was the state church, you know, the established church, yeah. sort of up until a certain point, uh, in the early 1900s, there was concern about the, the condition of a lot of the smaller rural churches and the fear is oh these records will be lost <laughs> so it was then mandated that okay oh, any church that isn't in a position to look after its historic registers must deposit them for safekeeping in what was then the public record office in Dublin and unfortunately that's you know turned out to be a, a poor choice because in 1922 the public record office burnt to the ground and so many of them were lost but for for those church you know for a lot of uh church of ireland records now for, i think for churches that have been deconsecrated their records are deposited with the the church of ireland archives for the catholic church they are still kept locally okay in those churches, although you know some some priests will you know will will try and tell you otherwise, that sort of have you know, you running back and forth between them, between you know the archives in Dublin, between the diocesan archives, and you know you might need to be you know you may need to be sort of say oh you know by the way I'd be you know, extremely grateful if you can help me and you know, I would even be you know, I'd be willing to make a donation. So, so you know, usually once you mention a donation... gets easier. It gets easier. Okay. <laughs> That's probably the best thing to say there. <laughs> yeah. 
okay because i I'd, I'd certainly seen episodes of of who do you think you are and um for for those um celebrities who do go over to the republic of ireland and they start looking into their records they normally always end up in a parish church looking at rec- looking at registers rather than than anywhere else so yeah so i mentioned in the introduction that uh you are working as an assistant genealogist for Ancestry.com. I appreciate there's probably a whole load of this that you can't tell us. Um, but what what can you tell us and what is it like? What what kind of what does that entail? It's it is very you know, it's different than than what I was working for myself. Um, because when you work for a a large company, you know, you don't we don't you know us the genealogists, except for the, the, you know, the research managers, we don't actually have contact with the client. Okay. At least not directly, because, you know, there's a, you have a customer relationship manager who kind of sets up all the, the contact. Then the research manager does a call with them at the very beginning of the session just to lay out what the objectives are and sort of, you know, to tell them, okay, well, we think we have a good chance of doing that, or we think it's yeah you know, we have a poor chance. Um, it's also you know, there's a lot more collaboration as well, because I could be, I could be researching a family in the US who think their ancestors were Irish, and then it will actually turn out that you know one of their lines was Scottish, and. Yeah, well, I you know, I love any excuse to get a chance to do Scottish research and you know, be extremely jealous of all their records. You know, it, it helps to be able to, you know, to approach uh, a specialist in Scottish genealogy. You know, we're fortunate to have uh, Kirsty Wilkinson on the the Scottish team, and so you just you know, you could just approach her and say, okay. I'm after you know, I've you know, this line is going to Scotland instead of Ireland. Would you be willing to contribute some research to this? So it's you know it's you know it's great like that because you have so many with a big company like Ancestry Progen, you have so you know so many specialists in so many different areas, and then you know some of my colleagues would come to me saying, "Oh, we're doing a research on for this client that's." Going into into Cork in the southwest of Ireland, would you be you know? Can you think of any other sources we haven't looked at? And you know, so it's you know, it's grace like that. That you know, you never know what you'll end up collaborating on. And I and I guess because because it's therefore dealt with as a project, and you've essentially got like a project manager who's talking to the clients, and then you've got the the experts who specialise in different areas and they're collaborating, then you perhaps get much more of a, an efficient, knowledgeable expertise yeah. level of research. Yeah, I think that's you know that's what they you know that is their their outlook. Or well, you know, I'm one of the you know the manager of you know Progen as a whole. She'd said something in. One of the service the company wide meetings uh, a few weeks ago, I said, yeah, we don't strive for perfection, we strive for excellence. 
I think that's yeah, I think that's a good motto for all genealogists. Because none you know, none of us will ever be able to do the you know, the perfect research where every single source is where it should be and we find out, you know, everything the client wants, but we should be aiming to to provide the best service that we can. That's what you'd want as a as a client, because you would be you would be wanting to receive back that knowledge that you yourself couldn't um use to 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 acquire this exactly so, yeah no, that's exactly what you'd want good <laughs> um because you have uh obviously a love for medieval history and for genealogy um are you ultimately looking to to trace maybe your family back into that era or or maybe you have already if if only it were possible um, I have, I mean, I'd know where, you know, the certain, you know, my surname is alleged to have originated, mm-hmm. but of, you know, when you have a surname like Ryan, that's, you know, you share it with, uh, you know, a good chunk of the population in this part of the yeah. country. So even though I could, you know, I could possibly point to some, Medieval Ryans and you know those who were alleged, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of you know kings in uh, you, know, you know sections of of County Tipperary. It's you know actually you know, having a direct connection to them, be able to say, okay, yes, this person is definitely my ancestor. Is it's near? It's nearly impossible with with Irish research. Yeah, I've, I wouldn't uh, envy trying to trace back that far. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like you know, I am like I was watching the uh, the Queen's cousins recently. That's uh, you know the show where they're you know, talking about some like the you know, the lesser known members of the royal family, and also you know there's one lady that they helped to yeah you know help prove that she was some like uh, you know a cousin to the like you know a distant cousin of the Queen and course you know with with royalty it's always that much easier because you know the records are better yeah, sure because you know they you know those that you know they rely on those records for their legitimacy well yeah i don't think the the uh non-royal people would have uh that luxury of having that so well documented <laughs> uh It's time for Relatively Speaking, the part of the show where my guest picks one of their most fascinatingly good, bad, or just plain ugly relatives and tells their life story. So, David, who are you going to introduce us to? I am going to introduce you to John Highland, who was my uh, great, great grandfather. Okay. Uh, the reason that I, I want to talk about John... Uh, well, you know, isn't so much about what he did in in his life, but maybe just the fact that you know he lived through through so much, you know, through such a very eventful period. <laughs> so he was born in the early eighteen fifties in the townland of Skihinarinka, okay, which is. Essentially, like, you know, on top of a mountain in Tipperary. Okay. 
he was born right at the very end of the Great Famine. So he was already born into a period that would have seen yeah. a loss of of hardship, a loss yeah. of very rapid change. And, you know, imagine that you know, like his parents would have seen a loss of their their neighbors and relatives emigrate, or possibly even have to go into the the local workhouse. Yeah, and we. Well, you know, when often when people talk about the famine, we talk about it as a. We talk about sort of you know, the, the high mortality, the immigration. But we don't talk as much about the, the economic, impact, of it on all levels of society. Because even the, even the wealthy landlords were impacted. And when when my you know ancestor was born, the, the landlord for that area was the the Earl of Kingston, based in uh, Mitchellstown Castle in Mitchellstown, not you know, only a few only a few miles away. Okay. But the famine suddenly meant that you know, as rich as Joseph Kingston were, that they, uh, you know, they had to sell off. You know, they had to get rid of quite you know, a large chunk of their lands, and there was a government scheme was bought in the time, which is essentially you know, bailing out the landlords. Yep. So you know, they were allowed to sell off their land. And then you'll know, kind of put it towards servicing some of their their debts. And then you had, you know, kind of this period of new landlords coming in. You had a lot of, you know, land speculation going on. So there would have been this sort of, you know, this uh, turnaround of of different landlords in quick succession as they bought up the land and sold it for, you know, a higher price. And by the time my great great grandfather became an adult or at least was you know kind of close to adulthood a man by the name of Nathaniel, Nathaniel Buckley who was a cotton mill owner from Lancashire became the landlord and uh, Buckley was essentially one of the you know he was a, he was a venture capitalist all he cared about with the land was just you know Getting as much money out of it as possible. He, as far as I don't think he ever actually set foot in the area himself. You know, he had an agent based there to the field to do all the work and keep an eye on things, and he was just happy to keep the you know, keep the money flowing in and you know allow it to to fund his his you know runs for parliament and stuff like that. Literally an investment. Oh yeah, and nothing, nothing else. Yeah, nothing else, and you know that's that meant that rents were, you know, rents could be jacked up suddenly. It's like for any of you who are renting, imagine if your landlord were to call around to you tomorrow, knock on your door, and say, "Oh, by the way, from next month, you know, you'll be paying three times your 
your current rent. And you had, you know, there was no, there was no legal protections for tenants at that time. Like at least nowadays you can, you know, you can, you know, you can bring it, you know, you can appeal it, you know, there's protections for tenants and stuff like that, but at this time there was nothing. So, you know, the land agent didn't make himself particularly popular in the area. And there were, there were a few attempts on his life. Okay. Now, you know, I have no, I haven't found anything that suggests, you know, my ancestors were directly involved, but, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in their nicely prayers, they were, they were suggesting, you know, you know, wouldn't it be a shame if, if this agent were to meet with an accident while out on his rounds the next day? So it wasn't their best friend, for sure. No, definitely. And there were a few assassination attempts on the agent. Gosh. He was actually, there were two attempts to, to shoot him. I think uh, one bullet, one time he was actually shot in the, the leg. While he was out sort of walking the, the grounds of the estates. And then another time he was he was uh, you know delivering the rent to the bank in Mitchellstown and there was an attempt to, to ambush him along the road. And he he ran for his life, but the the driver of the cars, who had the same surname as my assistant, and who I suspect was a was probably a a relation. Okay. He was killed. And I you know, I suspect you know that's events like that those sorts of you know, memories, you know, they get passed down the gen you know, the generations, and I would strongly suspect that it had an impact on their, their political outlook. Yeah, inevitably. Inevitably. And so, you know, I'm not too surprised then when, you know, we go forward a few decades and the 1920s come around and the the Irish Revolution, our War of Independence. And by this time, my... Yeah, you know, my great great grandfather, he'd you know, he'd be too old to take part in the fighting directly, but one of his grandsons was involved with the the IRA in that area. And I would suspect that a lot of the other members of the family, even if they weren't, you know, picking up weapons and and attempting to shoot anyone, were were providing sort of, you know, safe houses or maybe, you know, sort of, you know, passing on information, yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, I, you know, kind of, I lost track of him for, for a while after that and had been, you know, like going through the various death records, assuming that, oh, he must be dead. But then in the 1930s, I I came across him and his wife in a very unexpected source. Uh, in the nineteen thirties, the not the Irish National Folklore Commission decided that you know they wanted to to gather up all the the folklore in Ireland. You know, kind of capture as many of these old stories as they could before they disappeared for good. Mm-hmm. But instead of saying you know just sending out a a professional 
Clettered Stewart, they enlisted school children. And I found some of my, my grandfather's younger siblings as collectors, and somebody else, and wouldn't you know that those they managed to get information off of were their grandparents, who were in their, you know, their late 80s at this point, but you know, apparently still sharp, still you know, providing lots of great local stories. That is a stroke of luck that it just happened to be. It is. That fine and then, you know, as I sort of think, okay, well I know they're alive, you know, in the nineteen thirties, yeah. so let me you know, go forward and you know, for some reason they never officially registered the dead. Debts. There was never a you know, debt search for for either of them. Uh, I don't know if that was just, you know you know, sort of a bureaucratic oversight or maybe they they didn't think too highly of the Irish state at the time. Okay. So, you know, but I did find uh, their obituaries. And my great-great-grandfather died only a few weeks before his 100th oh. birthday. But I think you still all the stuff that he, he witnessed during his life. You know, just the, you know, the major social change and you know Ireland going from being you know firmly part of the the United Kingdom yeah. to becoming a a free state you know with dominion status in the 1920s to officially being declared a republic in the late 1940s yeah, so it's seen the whole transition through he had which is just amazing and you know just yeah, if I could go back and just, you know, sit down with him for a few hours and just record all of those those stories. It would be very interesting to, to hear. Obviously, there would be quite a lot of horrible hardship. Oh, but, rea- but realities yeah. that, that people had to had to go through in order to to just survive with the basic things that they needed. If you're if you've got a landlord who's just ready to throw you off his land, or oh yeah, that's something it. because he just wants to sell it on, yeah, be just horrible. Did you say you found his wife as well? Or? Yeah, she was you know she was about the same age. So I found her. You know, both of them were recorded in the the folklore collection, mm-hmm. and then I found you know her obituary as well. She died only a few years before he did. Okay, oh, well, well, it's uh, yeah, a complete. A complete fluke that those uh, school children happen to be um there to record their their older relatives and f- and then for you for that record to survive and then for you to find it it is it's amazing uh, yeah it's almost like a uh, destiny yeah <laughs> and speaking of destiny it's time to face the brick wall a brick wall will turn up in your research sooner or later It's a barrier between you and your relatives, the spot where the trail goes cold. In this part of the show, my guest will tell us about his current brick wall in a hope that you, dear listener, might just be able to offer a clue that will bring that wall tumbling down. So, David, what have you got for us? Well, actually, I have two ancestors. I'm going to be slightly slightly greedy (laughs) here. But actually, they they are both my three times great-grandmothers. Okay. Uh, we suspect they were 
they were sisters. You know, they're on opposite. You know, one's on my paternal side, one's on my maternal side, okay. and we think that they they may have been sisters. You know, that's the the family legend that's come down to us. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I have their their marriage records in the the eighteen forties. So I know at least I know that you know that you know they had you know their both had a father of the same name. One was named Nora Williams, the other was Bridget Williams. Okay. And, you know, you would think that, so, you know, it's, uh, it's not especially common surname in that part of Ireland, that it should be easy enough to, to confirm that, that they were related but the difficulty is ever with Irish research is that they seem to have been born just before the the baptismal registers begin in that area. Isn't it always the way? It is. It's always, you know, that's what ancestry you're looking for. It's always just out of reach of, yeah. of the records. <laughs> let's let's sneak some more children in before the before the registers start. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> And of course, you know, civil registration doesn't begin in Ireland until 1864. So it's, you know, you're relying on surviving parish records before that. And some, you know, if you're in an, you know, an urban area, they're fantastic. But if you're in the countryside, it's, you know, it's very, it can be very hit and miss. So if I see, you know, they seem to have been born just before the, the parish registers. Begin. Okay. So, okay, the first, I suppose, your proper record that I have of them is in their their marriage records. In the 1840s. Yeah. So, again, you know, so as I said, you know, I have a, a record which at least tells me that, you know, their fathers were, had the same name. But what makes it even more complicated is that, according to uh, you know, other some land records and baptismal registers I found in the area, there seems to have been two, you know, two families with different fathers, but who had the same names. So the two families, both with two daughters that are exactly the same as Honora and Bridget. Yes, which makes it more. Ugh. <laughs> Even more of a you know, of a, of a nice to try and uh, to try and untangle. Okay. They really needed more names back in history. They did, yeah. But I suppose you know, like what a lot of families did is that they had a you know they had you know, sort of nicknames. They would have applied to various families, sort of you know, in order to tell them apart. Or they would have you know they would have kind of referred to you by by where you came from. Okay, but but not helpful in official records. No, unfortunately not, because you know official records no one's going to think about recording that because they thought, well, you know, why you know, why should we bother? Who's going to care? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so whereabouts are the are these uh, two potential sisters known to be? They were. They were both in the the townland of Curley in the parish of Ballyprene in Tipperary. 
and is that is that the is that both families and both baptisms births yep <laughs> that's <laughs> And how about the marriages? Were they there as well? Marriages for yeah, they were there because you know it's you know people didn't people you know unlike in the UK and the US, people in Ireland didn't they didn't move around <laughs> that much. I mean, you know, if you really wanted to serve you know, a you know a distant marriage, you married someone from the next parish over. Yeah, I have this the the same thing with uh, Cambridgeshire, the uh, county where most of my ancestry is from in England. Um, and it's taken them about 430 years to kind of leave the county. <laughs> <laughs> they've, got, they've moved about 10 miles in that space. So I, I feel your pain on this one. And they didn't have many name options either. So yeah, it's... I, I feel your pain here. What's the most recent record that you're kind of really sure that you've got the right one? Or is it, or is it literally that marriage? Well, I have their... Um, for both of them, I have the the baptismal re- you know the marriage registers for them, and I have the the baptismal registers for for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, they don't seem to have uh, they don't seem to have left behind a death records either. Okay. Um, as I said, you know, civil registration only came in in Ireland in eighteen sixty four for everyone and. It's like a, you know, it takes a few years for for everyone to sort of get behind this. Mm-hmm. So you do have you know a, a number of families who who fall through the cracks during that time. Yeah, so I guess I guess if one of them died in their kind of fifties, then there's no guarantee that they would be turning up in records because it just hadn't been adopted. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. it definitely adds to the. Adds to the brick wall, I think. It does. It's a few more bricks. Yeah. Uh, so what's the best way for listeners to contact you if you th- if they think they've got a clue for you? Well, they can find me on, on Twitter under Ryan Genealogy or they can contact me just through, you know, just through this website. Yeah, that's the familyhistoriespodcast.com um, and we'll pop you in the in the drop down so listeners can use that form to, to contact you. Sounds great. So let's imagine you could uh, go back in time and uh, um, when and where would be kind of, and to whom would you, would you go back in time to and kind of have a chat with? I think I would go back to 1843, specifically 23rd of February, 1843, because that's when I have a, a marriage recorded for, for, Bridges Williams and Thomas Highland. Okay. And I think that's, you know, if I could get, you know, weddings are kind of you know, the best place to to find out about family because it's, you know, chances are everyone will have been gathered for that. Yeah. So you're going to, in theory, you'll have the, the a parent at least if they're, st- if they're still around. It's this, yeah. So and hopefully you know, you'd actually guess a bit of... You know, you'd maybe be able to get a sense of just, okay, how are all these different families interrelated? That would help to to solve that one, particularly with just those same names, same families, same areas. That's, that is really tough one to crack. Yeah, it's... Um, well, I think I might just be able to help you with this. Um, but we will need to go out to the garage. Okay, lead the way. I mean, do you have a, you know, a stash of a previously unknown Irish... Baptismal register is hidden away in the carriage, or is there something else? 
no, but there's something that's uh, probably just as useful. So follow me. Okay, lead the way. So, here's my secret time machine. Oh, wow, this is amazing. Isn't it just? Is that part of a tease, mate? No. Is that part of an old rotary no. phone? This bit looks like an old clock. <laughs> no, it's just a coincidence. This is top-grade, fully calibrated science equipment. Right, sure, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'll demonstrate if you sit in that chair. Oh, and take this. Uh, press the big button when you want to come home. Okay, got it. Now, what was that place again? Ballypreen Parish, Tipperary, Indian Republic of Ireland. To attend the wedding of my three times Grace grandmother. Oh, I love it when people pick weddings. It's... Oh, actually, uh, you can take these flowers. There. Ready? I'm ready. Okay, David Ryan. Thank you. Goodbye and good luck. Ah <laughs> yes. What? Huh? A P-O-N-D error. What's a what's a P-O-N-D? Oh. Pond error. He's in a pond. Oops. The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin, with additional sound production by Elliot Lees. My guest was the fantastic David Ryan. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please click subscribe to get the next one or consider leaving a review. They really do help. Thank you very much. Approximately no family historians were harmed in the making of this podcast.